You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I'm going to remind you that for the last last month or so, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we've done so, we have been asking simple questions. We've been trying to understand, what is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I say this repeatedly because here's the thing. I recognize that in this room right now, there are people that, who have not either been with us in a while, people who are new, or people who are genuinely just trying to say, look, I'm trying to figure this whole Christian thing out, and I don't really get it. One, Welcome to the club, okay? We're all trying to figure this thing out. So you're no, you're no farther behind than most of us, okay? We may be a step ahead, but that's it. We're right in this together. And here's the thing that we've learned as we've looked at Paul's letter to the Galatians for the last five weeks or so. It's this. Christianity is not about you. Regardless of what you've been taught, regardless of what you've thought your entire life, as we have read Paul, we have come to understand that Christianity is all about Jesus. And it's all about what Jesus has already done for us and what he continues to do for us. Our job as Christians is just to respond to Jesus, just as our brother Mac did today. Mac stands here and says, I believe that Jesus is my savior, and I continue to follow and submit to Jesus as my king. That's it. That's Christianity. It's living by faith. Now, if you were with us last week, we tried to unpack this idea of what is faith. How do we understand faith? And what we saw primarily, fundamentally, is that faith is only a response Faith is not something we initiate. It's not something we manufacture. You cannot create faith. Faith is simply God offering you something and you responding to that. God throwing a gift at you and you catching it. That's it. That's faith. And we saw, as we kind of pressed into the definition of faith, if you remember, that faith, by definition, is intellectual, emotional, and Faith impacts our actions. Faith changes the way that we live. When we say we believe something to be true, we are saying that knowledge, that understanding also impacts me. Whether it's emotionally or whether that's through my actions, what I believe changes me. We don't separate our intelligence from our actions or from our emotions. Now, why this matters is because when we say we have faith in Jesus. We have faith in what Jesus did. We are saying it's not just intellectual. We are not just saying Jesus died on the cross. What we are saying is Jesus died on the cross and that changes things for me. Now, if you're wondering, how does Jesus dying on the cross change things for me? Well, two weeks ago in the sermon, we addressed that very question. Remember, two weeks ago, we asked the question, how does Jesus dying on the cross affect my standing with God? 
Why did Jesus have to die? It's kind of like the most fundamental Christian question there is out there, right? And we answered it. We kind of dug deep into it to understand it. And what we realized is this. This is a a very short and condensed version of that sermon. Is that there was this giant barrier that existed between us and God. A barrier known as the law. And the law was put there because we didn't know how to truly just trust God. So the law was given to spell it out. But the problem is all these laws became a barrier because we could not perfectly keep the law. And because we couldn't perfectly keep the law, we weren't able to just approach God. So the law was this preventative barrier. So Jesus, in coming and dying on the cross, Jesus fulfills the law. We're going to talk about that this morning. And in fulfilling the law, Jesus removes this barrier and says, hey, if you want a relationship with God, look to me. Don't look to the law. Don't look to the law to define how to live. Don't look to the law to how to love. Don't look to the law for how to trust God. Look to me and me alone. And as we've seen all throughout Galatians, this is exactly Paul's point. In Galatians chapter 3, as Paul is trying to explain the significance of Jesus' death, Paul says this. Can we throw up the Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 verse, please? Paul says this, so you got to wonder, why then was the law given at all? If the law was this barrier that prevented us from experiencing a relationship with God, well then why did God give us that in the first place? Just complicates the whole process. And Paul says, it was added because of the transgressions, because of our mistakes, and it was given until the seed to whom the promise referred, which if you go and read above this in a couple verses in, in chapter 3, verse 16, you're going to see the seed is Jesus Christ. The law was given until Jesus came. And then he jumps to the end of the chapter and he says, so the law was our guardian, our babysitter, our guardrails to keep us on the right path until Christ came that we might then be justified solely by faith, not by the law. And now that this faith, meaning Jesus, has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We are no longer under the law. So again, just to make sense of this whole complicated little thing, is the law was given because we didn't know how to trust God. God simply said from the beginning, trust me. And we said, okay, And we had no idea how to do that. Remember the story of Abraham? Abraham said, God God told Abraham, I'm going to provide a kid for you. And Abraham goes, that's great. And then within a few years, he's already taken matters into his own hands and sleeping with his life servant to try and get himself a kid. See, when we are left to our own devices, we hurt ourselves. So we needed guardrails. And Paul says that's the purpose of the law. It was intended to help us. But now that the law, or now that Jesus has come, we no longer look to the law, we look to Jesus. We don't need the law anymore. We are, in fact, free from the law because of what Jesus did under the law. We talked about this two weeks ago, if you're wondering about more of this. We're free from the law. Now we just have Jesus. Okay, but this leaves one huge question that we have not yet left answered, and that is, So what do we do with the law? This has been the question from week one of this series. When I told you, you are no longer obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. And everybody was like, oh, 
you can't say that in church. The great irony, by the way, in the midst of this whole thing is you don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why is this so offensive? This is good news, church. You all lie. You know it. You all don't honor your parents perfectly. We all do this. Being free from the law should not scare us. It should be exciting to us. But we need to ask, so what role does the law play? If we are free from the law, how do we engage the law now? Do we just chuck it? Do we ignore it? Do we set it aside? Or does the, role, does the law still have a role? Does the law still have a purpose? Well, to answer that question today, I want to invite you to hear what Jesus has to say on the matter. This is what Paul had to say. Paul, we are no longer under the law. That is Paul. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say with regards to the law. And so I invite you to open up with me today to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And as you're opening to Matthew chapter 5, you're going to probably realize that Matthew chapter 5 is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. It was a sermon Jesus gave. Anybody want to guess where? On a mountain. Yeah, it's, it's a really creative title for the whole thing. Sermon on the Mount, given on a mountain. And in this sermon, Jesus gives a series of teachings on a series of teachings on how to live. And it's in the midst of that sermon, right towards the top of it, in fact, that Jesus gives this profound insight into the law. Jesus is going to help us understand not just the law, but the totality of the Old Testament. Look at what he says. Jesus says, do not think that I have come <clears throat> to abolish the law, or the prophets for that matter. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, at a cursory level, doesn't it seem like Jesus is contradicting Paul? I mean, uh, just a brief surface level. Doesn't it seem like Jesus is contradicting Paul? Paul says, now that Jesus has come, we no longer need the law. We don't look to the law anymore. We just look to Jesus. And Jesus goes, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to dare it down. I didn't come to abolish it. This is the word for destruction, for tearing down buildings. I didn't come to tear it down. I came to fulfill it. And in fact, Jesus says, I didn't just come to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This was the shorthand way of referring to all of the Old Testament. See, at that time, they didn't have the Old Testament. They just had the law and the prophets. So that's what they referred to it as, the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, do not think that I have come to do away with the Old Testament. I have not. The Old Testament still has a role. The Old Testament still matters. I came to fulfill it. And then he goes on to say, the law will always be with you until everything is accomplished. Now, just as like a theological side note here, 
There's been a lot of ink spilled on that phrase, everything is accomplished. What does that mean? Some people think it refers solely to the death and resurrection of Jesus and saying the law was only valid until the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't agree with that. I think everything is accomplished refers more to the final time when Jesus is going to come back and um, establish his kingdom fully here on earth. And the reason for that is because uh, I don't know why they would have added it to Matthew's gospel if it was any other way, and it's just safer to assume that. But the point is, if we say then that the law still exists, that means the law still has a purpose. The law still has a role. The law still matters. Jesus did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And in fact, he says, therefore, you should seek to learn from the law. Keep the law. And then if you continue reading in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually digs into the heart of the law. Jesus, if you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. You have heard it said that you are not to commit adultery. But I'll tell you, really, if you've lusted at all in your heart, you've already broken the law. Jesus takes the law to these new stratospheric levels that we're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. What do we do with this? But the point is, if we're going to understand how Jesus sees the law, it all hinges on that word fulfill. So what does Jesus mean that he came to fulfill the law? How do we understand that? Well, in a simple sense, right, to fulfill something means to complete it, to bring it to completion. And so Jesus, in one sense, and it's absolutely true, is saying the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament pointed to me. And the law and the prophets have their complete fulfillment in me. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you have to look to me. In one sense, Jesus is absolutely saying that. But this term is actually far richer than that. And in fact, I think the best way to explain it was actually a professor of mine. He gave this analogy, and I thought it was gold. But I'll tell you right now, children in the room, teenagers, you're not going to get this. So give me a second analogy to explain this to you. Adult, you're going to get this one, okay? Because it has to do with mortgages. And the kids are like, yeah, I don't even care about that subject. Don't even know what that is. Well, here's what a mortgage is. When you go to buy a house, very few of us have $750,000 in our back pocket that we just slap down on the table, right? Instead, when you go to buy a house, you actually have to borrow money from the bank. That is your mortgage. And you don't technically own the house. The bank owns the house. And because the bank owns your house, the bank sets certain rules for you to abide by in order for you to continue to stay in the house. And so think about it. The bank mandates, if you have a mortgage, that you pay your bills on time. That's true. The bank also mandates that you have homeowner's insurance. The bank also mandates that you do not intentionally or willfully tear down or devalue your property in some way. Because you don't own the property. The bank does. And as long as the bank owns the property, you are under their obligations. If you break their rules, they take the house away from you. Because you are under it. But once you pay off the debt, once you satisfy the obligations of the mortgage, well then the mortgage is fulfilled. You own the house outright, and the bank's rules have no power over you 
anymore. You no longer have to abide by the bank's standards. You're free from their standards. But just because you are free from the bank's standards doesn't mean you just chuck everything that the bank ever told you to do. Because you realize in the bank's standards, there was wisdom, right? There is wisdom in paying your bills on time. There is wisdom in having homeowner's insurance. There is wisdom in not intentionally destroying the value of your property. You don't have to do that. You don't have to pay your bills. You don't have to own homeowner's insurance. But there's wisdom in doing that. This is how we are to consider the law. See, when Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law, he's saying, I have paid all of your obligations. I have satisfied the debt and the burden, and you are no longer under this barrier. It's removed. It's done. It's fulfilled. You're good. Your life is done. It's free. You are right with God. Paul says you are no longer a slave, a slave to sin and a slave to the law. You are free because of what Jesus has done for you. But just because we are free from the law doesn't mean we can't still learn something from the law. Let me give you another example. This one will apply more to the kids, okay? And here's the example. When you are a kid, you have to do what your parents say, as long as you live in their house, right? If you are under their roof, their rules. But when you are 18 or when you move out, you are no longer obligated to be under your parents' rules. You're not under their house, Not under their roof, not under their rules. But just because you're not under their rules doesn't mean that you just chuck everything your parents ever taught you. You still know it's a bad idea to touch the stove when it's hot. You still know it's a bad idea to walk around and call people stinky, poopy, mean pants. Right? Like, that's just mean. That hurts. You've also learned that it's not like socially acceptable to walk around and pick gum up off the street and just pop it into your mouth. Your mom taught you that. Your mom had wisdom in that. Now, here's the thing. You can do it. You can touch the hot stove. You can call people weird names. You can eat gum off the floor, and some of you are probably weird enough to try it. You're free. You're not under your parents' roof but you don't chuck everything your parents said. See, as Christians, we recognize we are not under the law. We are free from the law. The law no longer dictates how we live. The law no longer dictates how we love. The law no longer dictates how we trust God. We don't have to worry about that. Instead, as Christians, we look solely to Jesus. Jesus is the one who defines how we live. Jesus is the one who says, this is what I want you to do. And here's the thing. Jesus only had one rule. Jesus takes the 612 rules of the Old Testament and goes, I'll sum it up in one sentence. If you are my disciple, if you look to me, if you want to follow me, here's what you do. Love. Love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciple if you love one another. Love. Jesus takes the entirety of the Old Testament law and just says, you can fulfill it in one law. Love. So you no longer need to worry, what does Deuteronomy 16.4 say? What does Leviticus 18.12 say? Like, what? no, doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about that. You only have to worry about the one law. But just because 
just because you have the one law doesn't mean that we should just fully chuck the law. See, the law still gives us a lot of wisdom on how to love. Let me give you some examples this morning. That's what I want to do this morning. And here's the thing. I've chosen some, some simple examples and some really awkward examples to show you where even the weirdest sections of the law can teach us a lot about how to love and how to trust God. Okay? The first is really quite simple. So say you want to learn to love somebody. Here's some great advice. Open up the Ten Commandments. You want to learn to love somebody, open up the Ten Commandments, and you're going to find some great advice there. If you want to love somebody, don't murder them. Really quite simple. Don't murder their loved ones. Don't steal from them. Don't sleep with their spouse. Don't lie to them. Don't obsess over what they have and you don't have. It's simple. It's basic. But here's the truth is, you look at that and you go, well, yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense. Because if you are truly trying to love as Jesus has loved you, then of course you're going to naturally fulfill the law. Paul says in Romans 13, the one who loves fulfills the law. Or Jesus, when he was asked to summarize the totality of the law, he said, Jesus, can you sum up the law? Can you give us the greatest commandment? What's the one we need to? He goes, I got, I got two. One, love God, love your neighbor. Love. Love is the sole driving force. And as long as your sole priority, your sole focus is how do I love you will not only fulfill the law, but you will follow Christ. You will live exactly as Jesus did. So your sole guiding directive in life is, how did Jesus love me? How can I love this person? Or another example of this is, when you're in a situation and that obnoxious guy at work is driving you nuts, or your roommate in the floor or in college, she's just grating on you, and you're like, what do I do? You have to think, how would I want someone to love me in this situation? And then you love out of that. That's the only law that you have to worry about. That's incredibly freeing. And you look in the law and you're going to find that's going to be reinforced time and time again. That as long as your guiding principle is to love, then of course you're going to follow the law. But here's where the law is really cool. Because the law will push you to consider how to love in ways that you may have just forgotten or never even thought about in the first place. Let me give you an example out of Deuteronomy. This is a weird law. This is a weird one, but it has a lot to teach us about love. Deuteronomy 25.5 says this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. In other, in in other words, if I die... My wife would have to marry my brother. Well, I don't have a brother, so it would go to the next closest male relative. I don't exactly know who that would be, but that's how the system works. And you look at that law and go, that's disgusting. <laughs> and some of you are like, praise God we are under that law because I can't stand my sister-in-law. But here's the thing, before you just chuck this law as weird and say, I'm so glad we don't have to deal with it, you've got to realize that when you press into the heart of this law, the reason the law was given, you actually can learn a lot of wisdom about how to love, specifically how to love widows in society. Let me show you. See, in this culture, and really in every culture until recent times, 
for whatever reason, women were not allowed to inherit property. Obviously, we've changed that now. But for the longest time, women were not allowed to inherit property. Only sons were allowed to inherit property. And so when a husband would die and he didn't have a son, all of his property, all of his possessions, all of his assets would get transferred back to his family. Well, this would leave the woman entirely destitute. And this was unacceptable. God said, no, we're not going to deal with that. No, no, widows are important. We need to care for widows. And so God cared so much for widows that he prescribed into the law how to care for them. They, along with their husband's assets, were supposed to be transferred to the next closest male relative. And therefore, the woman got to keep all of her husband's assets with her, and she was no longer destitute. Now, we can debate all day long, why didn't God just put in the law, women can inherit property? This would have resolved the entire thing. Actually, it doesn't. Let me give you an example of this. Think about it on our own level. Okay, obviously, how, how do we care about widows today? Obviously, we don't have to worry about if somebody dies marrying them so that they keep property. Women can inherit property. Thank God for that. But how else do we care for widows? Specifically, how do we emotionally care for widows? How do we rally around widows? I want you to think about this. Because typically, when a funeral occurs, when somebody dies, we are good for about a month. We're good for about a month. And we will rally around the family. We will care for the family. We will bring food for the family. We will check in with the family. We will love that family. But then we get on with life. We move on. And we forget the widow. We forget her family. See, we can mock their system all we want. But look at this. They already build in a social structure a social safety net to not just take care of her physically and financially, but also socially. They weave her back into the family so that she is cared for as she grieves in the midst of the entire process. That's beautiful. See, the law pushes us to consider how do we love, in this specific case, how do we love the widows in our life? How do you care for the widows in your families? What about the widows next door? What about the widows in our community? Look, I don't know if you know this, but this community is full of widows. It's a growing demographic in the first service. How do we care for them? The law pushes us to consider that. See, the law is good. The law has wisdom on how to love. The law allows us to think of things that we may have just forgotten not because we had any ill will towards it. It's just life got on and the law focuses us. But the law also teaches us how to trust. See, I don't know if you know this either, but the law says a lot about finances. And everything the law has to say about finances really has to do with our ability to trust God. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the phrase tithing, right? To tithe or I'm going to tithe at church or whatever it is. To tithe means to set aside 10% of your income and give it to the Lord. And here's the thing. That idea absolutely comes out of the law. 
That comes out in a number of different places in the law where we are told God is the owner, we are the steward, and as the steward, we give back to God what is his. Everything we have is a gift from God, and so out of that, we just take 10% off the top and give it right back to the owner. It's the interest due to him, if you want to think of it like that. And we just hand that over. That is absolutely in the law. But here's the thing. There's no such thing as the one tithe. In fact, in the law, there are multiple tithes mentioned. The first one, as I said, comes out of Numbers 18, but it's also found in a number of other places in Leviticus. And that is this idea that you just take 10% off the top of your income and give it back to God. Specifically, you give it to the priests or you give it to the, the temple in that day and In our day and age, we continue this practice. That's why when we pass around the offering plate at the end, we're continuing this practice of saying we want to take our offerings, what God has given to us, and we want to further the ministry of God through the ministries of Grace Lutheran Church. That is exactly what we're doing. But this isn't the only tithe that God talks about. The second one you probably never knew was in there in the first place. Do you know God says you are to set aside 10% of your income for vacations? The second tithe mandates that you are to set aside 10% of your income so that, or Israel, was to set aside 10% of their income so that they could go and celebrate the holy feasts. So that they had enough money to stop working for a while, leave their farm, leave their field, step away with their family, get some time to recharge, go up and reconnect with God in Israel. And in fact, it says, if you read Deuteronomy, they are to eat, drink, and be merry. They're to refresh themselves. Now, you may look at this and go, no, vacationing is bad. No, it's not. And think about this. The idea of rest was so important, God put it in his top five of his top ten. You should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. God said, every week I want you to take a day off. Every week I want you to rest. I want you to be refreshed. I don't want you burning the candle at both ends. Rest. So this should not come as a surprise that God also says, in your finances, I want you to also set aside 10% for you to rest. This is important. Finally, there's a third tithe. This third tithe, which follows in the verses of chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, is a tithe that was supposed to be dispersed every three years. And this was meant for the disadvantaged people. So the poor, the needy, the foreigners, the immigrants. And then I love that they lump us in there, the priests as well. They just are like, oh, those poor priests. We'll lump them in with the disadvantaged But the idea is this tithe was dispersed every three years, which means every year you need to save three and a third percent. So here's the idea. Typically in church, we talk about the tithe, the 10% that you got to give because the law says it. Well, number one, there's no such thing as the one tithe. There's no such thing as the 10% that you give. In fact, if you add all of these up, the quick math nerds among you probably got there. 23 and a third. 23 and a third percent, Israel was mandated and dictated to set aside in this. Now, I want to be very clear on this. We don't have to do this. We are not obligated to keep this law. So let go of your wallets. Just, you know, let the stress go out. Honey, you can release your claws. Pastor's asking for 23 and a third. No, I'm not. You're free from this. 
And here's the thing, I want to make sure you know this and you understand this and that this is clear. You don't have to give. You're under no obligation. It doesn't affect your standing with God in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't make you more holy. It doesn't make you more righteous. It doesn't change that at all. You're free from the law. But what the law does, just as it pushed us to consider how we love, the law pushes us to consider how do we trust God? Specifically, how do we trust God with our finances? Are we allowing him to shape the way that we spend money? I mean, just consider these three categories. Okay, ignore the percentage and just consider the categories. The first category God says is, I want you to participate in kingdom work. I want you to give money to the church and all the ministries of God so that the ministry of God can continue. I want you to play a role in that. I want you to give to me as the master, as the owner of everything you have. I want you to give me a part of that. Do you do that? The second part is, do you budget? Do you set aside time for you? God thought it was so important, he mandated it in the law that you have space to rest and relax and reconnect with him and reconnect with your family. Are you doing that? There's wisdom in there. And then finally, above and beyond all of this basic stuff, are you giving to the disenfranchised? Are you giving to the disadvantaged? Above and beyond, sacrificially, if you want to call it that way, just thinking about these three categories is incredibly helpful to think about money and how we do. And here's the thing, you don't have to, the, the percentages don't matter. Give whatever you are able with. Give whatever you're comfortable with. But the point is, the law forces us to consider how we do this. Now, Jesus, it's really interesting. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he reflects on the topic of money, Jesus says something profound. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's an incredibly profound statement because what Jesus is really saying about money is this. You can tell what a person prioritizes. You can tell what a person deems to be important by where they invest their money. Look, here's the thing. If you were to look at my bank account for the last year, you're not going to find a dollar being spent on baseball. I do not prioritize baseball. It could not be lower on my priority list. Okay? Thank you, John Timmons, for being the one person that does. But the point is, you should be able to say, by looking at a person's finances, this is what a person prioritizes. And so church, we have to consider personally, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to ask ourselves that as people who have experienced the grace of God in our life, as people who say Jesus matters, as people who say I have experienced forgiveness, I have experienced redemption, I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life, I've seen God answer my prayers, I've seen God change my family, I've seen God change my life. Where are you investing your money? Where are you putting your finances? And what does that say about your priorities? See, the law pushes us to consider these things. It's uncomfortable, but that's a good question. Think about it like this, because I think this is just helpful. If an accountant got hold of your last year's expenditures and they knew nothing about you, what would they be able to discern about you from your finances? From the way you spend your money? What would they be able to discern about how you prioritize your family? What would they be able to discern about how you prioritize rest? 
What would they be able to prioritize about how you care for your community? What would they be able to prioritize about your faith? From your balance sheet. Where your money is, there your heart is also. That's a profound statement. See, the law pushes us to consider these things. See, the law isn't something to fear. The law is something to press into because the law forces us to consider things that we just may not have ever thought of on our own or, or forgotten to. The law is this refinement process. Now, one other thing about the law, because you're going to go back and read this and you're going to experience something that's going to be a little uncomfortable for you. The law will also convict you. The law will show you you are not perfect. The law will show you you make mistakes and you need help. The law will show you that you are a liar. That you, like me, do not treat other people fairly. That you, like me, do not always honor your parents properly. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we allow the law to confront us and challenge us and speak to us. The law will reveal that we have our own idols just as Israel did. Now, we, we may not have little statues or figurines. Some of us do. But most of us have something that we look to for our comfort, for our security, for our prosperity, for our health. It, it could be our jobs. It could be our wealth. It could be our family systems. It could be our education. It could be doctors. We put faith in something above God. All of us do this. The law shows us that. The law convicts us. The law challenges us. The law also challenges the way we think and act, even in the way we engage our politics. Look, here it is. I don't know if you realize this. The law says a ton about immigration, a ton about how to treat immigrants. Very little of it is making Fox News. Very little is making the news in general. Church, the law still speaks into these, not because we're obligated to keep the law, but because the law points us to Jesus. The law shows us we have this great chasm that actually exists between us and God. We are not God. There is such a huge difference between us and God. We are so broken in comparison to him. We could never crawl our way out of our hole to make ourselves right with God. The law will continue to humble you. The law will continue to convict you. The law will continue, the theological term is to show you the depths of your depravity. Just how messed up and broken you are. But what that really does is it allows you, when you then look to Jesus, when you look to the cross, it allows you to be able to understand the fullness of what Jesus did for you. As Mac modeled for us, in being baptized, we say that we died along with Christ. We were buried along with him, and our old self went with it. All of our sins, all of our brokenness, all of our junk. But just as Christ came back from the dead, so too do we come back to new life. Life free from the law, life free to engage God as his children, life free to call God Father. The more you read the law, the more aware of what it is that Jesus actually did for you and the gratitude just wells up in waves. So church, I say it again, don't fear the law. You are free from the law because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
Jesus and Jesus alone is all you need to be right with God. But let us not chuck the law. Let us not ignore it. Let us continue to look to it. Let the law allow it to speak wisdom to your life. Wisdom on how to love, how to treat people, how to trust God, how to engage God with your finances. But also, may the law remind you exactly what your God has done for you. And may it cause you to well up with such gratitude that you cannot help but become a zealot, a zealot like me, who gets excited and yells at people on a stage with gardening shears. That's my prayer, that's my hope for you, church, let's pray.